When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today, I'm joined by Pat Cullen, General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, and Rachel Sylvester, columnist at The Times and Chair of The Times Health Commission, to discuss the mounting NHS crisis and the new wave of strikes by junior doctors and nurses. For Prospect Online, Rachel wrote a really interesting piece arguing that the NHS is a terrible employer for reasons that go beyond pay. So first of all, Pat, do you agree with Rachel that the NHS is a terrible employer and why? No, I don't. Actually, I think the NHS is um, an incredible institution that serves the people of the UK very, very well. Now, in, in more recent years, the NHS hasn't been able to deliver to, I suppose, the, the principles and the objectives for which it was intended. But that's, I, don't, I don't believe that that's to do with it being a terrible employer. I think it has been a victim of its own success in many ways, in that the NHS, um, as it was established in 1948, probably none of us would have foreseen just how much has progressed over those years and how much that has meant in terms of being able to get the highest level of expert treatments and care that, that we are able to provide for for the people of Great Britain. So that has put an enormous amount of pressure on the NHS. And for me, when I look at the NHS, and I've worked in it most of my, my work in life, of my 43 years now of nursing, I feel that uh, it's not a terrible employer, but in many ways the NHS has been let down by, um, certainly in the last decade, by those that are responsible for it, ensuring that it has the resource that it needs to be able to deliver for the patients that, that we've got to see. Um, and also making sure that the staff within the the NHS are looked after in a way that they need to be able to be looked after so that they can then look after the people that we need to treat. So I think I might disagree that it's a terrible employer, um, to be honest. And Pat, how much do you think the current wave of industrial action is to do with pay and how much is it to do with other conditions? And the sense 
what I was writing about in the piece is this sense that doctors and nurses talk about of moral injury almost, that, that they feel they can't do their job because of the system. They can't save lives in the way they're trained to do. I think there's a, there's a lot in, in what you've just said. Uh, and I've thought a lot about this um, as the person that is leading the industrial action on, on behalf of now 280,000 nurses right across England. Um, is it just about pay or is it about something much bigger than pay? I think it's about, it's certainly, there, pay is a fundamental part of it, but it's about a much bigger picture in that, I think even, I know, I, I think the place that we tend to go back to is how did staff feel during the pandemic? But if I was to, to be honest, I would say it goes back further than that. And it's probably a, for this past decade where I can speak for nursing again, where they have felt completely undervalued in a system that has been depleted of resource, that has been underfunded, underinvested in, and been asked to do more and more and more. So if you look at, and and I've worked at, at many senior levels as a nurse throughout the NHS, and each year when cost savings measures were put in place and money was being taken out of trusts, to balance the books. Uh, the place that they went to look for that within the NHS was within the nursing profession. And what did that result in? It resulted in a freeze on nursing posts. It resulted in less and less opportunity for career progression because any opportunities to develop and enhance and modernise services was usually put on hold to get money back out of the system. It resulted in uh, posts being held in the system and then filled on a temporary basis so that, in the words of nurses, the top could be switched on and off when they needed money back out of the system. Uh, it resulted in an over-reliance on the agency, Jersey Nursing, again, to be able to do temporary fixes and an over-reliance on nurses being pushed to work through bank arrangements where they were not where they were actually not given the opportunity to earn overtime as they should so all of that left created a picture where nurses felt really undervalued and not and and I suppose people not caring for them in the way that they were being expected to, to care for their patients then along comes the pandemic when you think of the pandemic, here we were working in a completely broken system. The NHS was already broken at that point. Uh, nurses were working um, in conditions that they should never have been asked to work in. Um, and then uh, with vacancies in every single department, every ward, every unit, intensive care wards, paediatric intensive care um, understaffed, coronary care wards understaffed, all of those really fundamental areas. And what were they asked to do? They were asked to actually hold it all together and hold this country together. And they did, they absolutely did, but they did it to a co at a cost to themselves. 
that was done at a serious cost to those individuals. So why do you think the RCN voted against the deal, but the Unison voted in favour? Because that would apply to all union members across the board. I think there's a couple of reasons for for that. Uh, The first being that our nurses felt that uh, this government had pushed them just uh, a step too far by keeping them on picket lines for 12 weeks, standing out in the cold, refusing to speak to them and being disrespectful by saying to them, my door is always open, but we're not going to talk about pay and actually you should be quite satisfied to earn £29,000 a year and try and live on it. And then when they found, when, when they realised that that wasn't going to work for them, and I mean the government, after 12 weeks and six days on picket lines and those nurses losing more and more money, they decided to bring them in, bring us into a room and talk to them. But what did that result in? It resulted in a sweetener, as the nurses would put, put to us, or an insult being put on the table um, of a non-consolidated COVID bonus payment and nurses told that that should be okay because they had obviously been complaining that they weren't able to pay their bills but what the nurses were saying to us is that whilst we desperately need that money we absolutely need the money it isn't going to fix the long-term problems within the health service because that money is personal to the individual because when it comes to next year the money comes back off the table so Nurse A and Nurse B will get the money, but should Nurse A's post or Nurse B's post become vacant, that money doesn't sit with that post for the next person coming in. In other words, it's not consolidated to the post, but is is for the person. And actually, I see that as quite an incredible way for nurses to look at it because it just shows the selflessness of them. They were saying it's not really about us. We need to fill the vacant posts. We need to be able to try and bring in further expertise into the profession, um, new graduates, instead of them going elsewhere after they have completed their training. So they, they just weren't willing to accept that because they felt this was only another sticking plaster from, from this government. And Pat, I mean, I think everybody in the public can empathise with the ridiculous struggles that nurses have gone through during the pandemic and beyond. And YouGov polling, of course, continues to suggest that the public support nurses in their strike action but what we are looking at here is a 48 hour strike over a bank holiday weekend with no exceptions for critical care staff so that means walkouts from staff in emergency departments walkouts from staff in cancer care is this proportionate and do you think that excess deaths will result from this well you see that's another very interesting question and one that we have spoken about as a nursing community uh, for for many days now and indeed for many for many weeks and it's interesting that the focus is on now when those nurses size their absolute right to stand up for themselves and stand up for the health service the the rhetoric is if you do that you are going to cause additional deaths and you know The fact of the matter is, I don't think they do need a lecture from this Secretary of State or from the Prime Minister about 
uh, and pushing the blame onto them about excess deaths on a day of a strike action. From the last day of strike action to now, neither Steve Barclay nor Rishi Sunak has come out raising their concerns about the excess deaths in our NHS as a result of the severe, severe nurse staffing shortages we've got or the excess deaths of those people that they've left sitting, the 7.2 million people that they've left languishing on waiting lists year on year. And there hasn't been a word about those. When we know from our Royal Colleges that approximately 500 people are dying unnecessarily as a result of those particular issues every week. And there hasn't been a word about it. And then they'll say to nurses things like, you know, uh, you are too valuable to strike. And yet you're not valuable enough to pay fairly. So you know what the nurses have said now? We have now year on year under this government been told you must make do. And that's whether it's to do with short staffing or whether it's to do with not enough beds for their patients, having to leave their emergency departments and go and treat their patients in the backs of ambulances. Uh, all of those things that, that you hear that nurses have to do day in, day out, they've been told you need to make do with that. And now they're saying, you know what, we're going to turn the tables now and say to this government, you need to make do without us for a while till you see what it's really like. Well, do you see what it's really like for our patients? Do you see what it's really like to have to work a 12-hour shift? And that's where the moral injury comes from. Those nurses are coming off those shifts. And I would love Rishi Sunak or Steve Barkley to walk with them on a 12-hour shift. I have done that. And look in their whites of their eyes when they finish that shift and tell them that they should continue to make do because it is morally and ethically wrong. It is morally and ethically wrong what they are doing. Isn't the problem, though, that it's not ministers who are going to suffer, it's the patients? But our patients are suffering, Rachel, and they've suffered for far, far too long. They've suffered as a result of not being able to get the nursing care and treatment that they absolutely deserve and that they've paid into. Um, patients being left with... Um, with care undone on every single shift, simply because the nurses just cannot get to those patients. When you look at those patients, they're mostly elderly patients with serious chronic conditions. And we have missed medication um, rounds, patients not been able to get their medications, patients not been able to get their, their personal care delivered to them. All of those things, we could we could fill the books with all of those areas that, that, that we are able to, that we are missing out on being able to care for our patients simply because we have a health service now that is in total crisis as a result of being, of through neglect. It is through neglect and nothing else and people taking their eye off the ball and not doing the right thing for the people here. So nurses standing out on picket lines for a day, trying to get their voice heard for their patients has not caused the crisis that we're in. This is the first time in 106 years that those nurses have spoken up and spoken out on behalf of themselves and behalf of their patients. And they're saying enough is enough. We need to really sit down now and have seriously 
mature growing up conversations about where we are going. You know, I was on a program yesterday to hear the the chief executive of comparethemarket.com, I think it was, saying that every week now, his organization is being contacted by thousands of people uh, to secure private health insurance. Now, I would have to ask yourself, why are they doing that when they've paid all their lives into this National Health Service, which is an institution that we all ought to be so proud of? But it has been neglected, Rachel. It has been absolutely neglected. And the institution that is the NHS has been neglected and the people that work in it have been left behind. Pat, I completely hear the argument that you're making that nurses need to walk out to illustrate to the ministers what it is like when they aren't there. But my question to you is how many deaths resulting from that are an acceptable number of deaths? There's no there's no acceptable number of unnecessary deaths. Never will be, never has been, and nor should there be. But what I'm saying to you is that those excess deaths that happen every single week in their hundreds have not been caused by our nurses. They absolutely have not. And it's because our nurses have continued to have to tolerate those that they've said enough now. We're going to stand up and we're going to speak out for our patients. And we're going to try another way of trying to get our patients off waiting lists. We're going to try another way of being able to retain the nurses we've got so that they don't go to Australia and New Zealand and Canada the same way as our junior doctors are going. And that we're going to be able to try and recruit into the the profession. And look, those are the fundamental issues we need to address. If we are serious about trying to prevent unnecessary deaths amongst amongst our people, we have to start to really address the fundamental problems within our health service. After the break, we'll talk more about the impact of strikes on the mounting NHS crisis. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And what happens if ministers just ignore the RCN and go ahead with the pay rise anyway on the grounds that the other unions have backed it? Do, isn't there a danger that you start to look irrelevant? Do you worry that perhaps you've radicalised your members? No, I don't think, I, I really don't think that our members are by any means radicalised, Rachel, definitely not. What I'm proud of is that they feel they've got their voice now. And that that's the difference. They, they, the, you know, there'll always be a group of within any large organisation who could be perceived perhaps as a little bit more militant than than others. But our members, we are an apolitical organisation. We're very proud of that. We're also proud that we're not affiliated to any political party. And that actually gives us great scope to speak up. It doesn't matter who's in government, we will hold them to account. So uh, do we do we feel we'll become irrelevant? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't believe that the people of Great Britain will ever allow nursing staff to become irrelevant. Uh, and sooner or later, I believe that this government will will come back to the table. And I think it will be sooner than later and start to look to see how they can prevent their nursing staff having to spend another six months on picket lines. I do. And Pat, what would an acceptable offer look like? And more broadly, what do the government need to do to tackle the NHS crisis that's leaving both patients and nurses in this situation? So the first part of that is what would an acceptable offer look like? First thing I've said to the Secretary of State, and I've written to him, and I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to meet him this week, uh, is to say, don't take anything off the table. Because whilst there was money on the table, there were other There were other um, areas we were able to negotiate. And I think it's come back to what, you know, what is at the core of what these nurses are asking for. And the one area that actually pushed the accept vote percentage in this for nursing staff was that we were able to secure a position with this government to put in place um, a policy position around safe, safe nurse staffing that could allow us then to move to a legislative position. Um, which is the same, which, which is the position we've reached in the other UK countries, the other three UK countries, with England being an outlier. That's really. Do you mean minimum staff levels on wards? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it's something that our nursing staff in this college, because we're not just a trade union, we're a professional organisation as well, and we pushed very hard for this in the health and care bill, but the Secretary of State wouldn't wouldn't bite. So do you think if the the government moved on that and put that into legislation, that that might swing enough of your members into the yes camp? Well, well, that's not going to happen overnight. Rachel, that's, you know, I, I, this, the, that was the basis of our strike action in Northern Ireland 2019 and we're only moving to consultation period. Now it takes takes some time to, to move, as you'll know, to move something into legislation, but it's a massive step forward. The second, the second part of that in terms of what we were able to negotiate was a separate pay and reward structure for nursing and to start that work. Nursing is part of a wider pay structure, which involves all professional groups within the NHS, and it doesn't take account 
of how nursing expertise and skill has transformed over the years since that structure has been in place for for 24 years. Uh, And it needs to do that. It also needs to be that pay structure doesn't reward nursing for the level and intensity of work that they do. So those two areas were were very important for nursing and they're important to modernise and transform the NHS as we move forward. Uh, so, So those are areas that we would want to continue to pick up with government and to build on and work on what we're also saying to them and I'll be saying to the Secretary of State this week if I have the opportunity to meet him and that is he must not take anything off the table that he has put on in this first round of negotiation Uh, and it needs to be built upon, absolutely must be built upon. We need to do that fairly quickly. Pat, obviously junior doctors on strike as well, represented by the BMA. And the biggest concern for NHS bosses being a coordinated action between the two of you. Will you rule out coordinated action or is that something that you keep on the table? Well, I don't think anyone will find any record anywhere where I've said that we were going to coordinate action with the BMA. Uh, doctors and nurses, we all know, work side by side every single every single day of the week and on every shift. They are the backbone of the health service and the junior doctors, uh, we couldn't run a health service if we didn't have junior doctors in the same way we would, can't run them without nurses. Uh, I, I don't see us taking action on the same days. However, I've no control over what the BMA does in terms of what days they choose to take their action in the same way they have no control over over mine but we are in discussion with each other and I have no and certainly the Royal College of Nursing have no plans in place to coordinate action on the same day with junior doctors but inevitably if if this action continues to run all year and we reballot our members and action continues um, through through the next part of the year the impact is going to be felt regardless of whether uh, it's coordinated, whether it's on the same days. But I do want to make it very clear because this is about patient care. At the end of the day, we have no plans in place to coordinate action. And, and finally, Pat, it seems that your message to the public is that it is the ministers who are responsible if there are any excess deaths that flow from this. And it's the ministers that should be held accountable for the situation we're in with the NHS. What do you say to the public in the kind of action they can take to support nurses yeah well first thing i would say to the public and we see it in in the the times today the public the public get nursing in the same way as we get we get um patient care and we get the public uh, our members every single one of them have the greatest respect for the public they stood by us because they know that nurses stand by them nurses are not fair-weathered friends uh they're at they're at they're at the sides of, of the public, young and old, day and night, thick and thin. And I think the public will ultimately know where to place their, their support. And their support has been fantastic to now. But we'll we'll never take that for granted as nurses, definitely not. And I know people may feel that this is a bit of a cliche, but I know that our nursing staff are doing this as much for their patients as they are doing it to try and make ends meet themselves. So, Rachel, moving on to junior doctors, um, 
Can you just tell me a bit more about what led you to write your piece and a bit more about what you argued for anyone who hasn't read it? So I was saying that actually an underrated quality in politics is empathy. And I think that the government sort of just say no approach to the strikes uh, and not even to engage in talks with the junior doctors misunderstands the kind of emotional drivers of the industrial action. Um, and I was really shocked to see the latest NHS staff survey, which found that a third of staff roughly describe themselves as burnt out and, and about a third also are thinking of leaving. Um, and the problems of retention, mental health problems within the NHS, 500,000 staff days lost to mental illness each month in the NHS. There's, there's a real crisis of morale. And it's not enough, it's not just about pay. And it's about also the conditions that staff are expected to work under, and that they feel that they're trained to save lives and that they can't do it. And that's incredibly demoralising. I spoke to one uh, uh, one of the members of our health commission, Wahid Aryan, who's uh, an Afghan refugee who came to this country and is now an A&E doctor. And he compared it to fleeing a war zone. He said, uh, you know, staff are traumatised in the way that, after the pandemic, in the way that refugees are when they flee a war zone. Uh, and they're really struggling um, with sense of post-traumatic stress disorder among many doctors. And then that also that the NHS is really struggling to keep a lot of doctors. You know, you've got Australia advertising outside hospitals. Uh, come on in, the water's lovely, pictures of a paddleboard. Lots of them are thinking, is it going to be, am I going to be better paid and less stressed if I go to another country? I spoke to one surgeon, a really top surgeon, who'd quit to run a waffle store because he just couldn't deal with the kind of chaos in the NHS and turning up to operate and finding that the lists were cancelled because there weren't enough beds for his patients. And the final straw came when he was operating and the lights went out in the operating theatre and he had to complete the surgery using the torch on his mobile phone. So there's a sense that this is this goes beyond money. And I think sometimes ministers don't speak or act as if they understand that. Especially in the case of doctors, who I think many people would say are well paid in comparison to nurses. What did the doctors that you spoke to have to say about that? So they are well paid, but the, I think there's a misunderstanding of what a junior doctor is. So actually, a junior doctor can be way into their 30s. They can have been training for... 13, 14 years and still not fully qualified, they're still counted as a junior doctor. And there's a huge range of pay within that cohort. Some are not very well paid, some are much better paid. And I think, you know, the demand for 35% is completely unrealistic. And the suggestion that they've had a real-time terms pay cut of 26%, according to the Nuffield Trust, that's not accurate. It's more like... 8% up until this year or 11% once you take into account the inflation. Um, but but these are really highly qualified and quite and quite experienced people uh, who are being treated like children. They, they talk to me about how they feel infantilised by the system. So things like it's impossible to plan your rotors. You've got no flexibility. Uh, if you're training as a surgeon, you might be posted hours away from home for one of your placements and uh, uh, several of the trainee surgeons I spoke to are traveling four hours each day to work 
really difficult to juggle with a family. One of them was had been at one point spending four thousand pounds a month on childcare because you need so much kind of wraparound care. So there's a sort of misunderstanding of the impact on people's lives and that actually how difficult it is to juggle uh, and that often family life is really incompatible with these some of these roles. And do you see the government kind of coming to the negotiating table with junior doctors? I know they've made, as you mentioned in your piece, some very political attacks on the BMA. I think there's a problem that the government has got in its m- m- sort of head that having a row with the unions is beneficial uh, and they've sort of fixated on the Margaret Thatcher 1980s models standing up to the trades unions particularly standing up to the BMA seen as a kind of reactionary uh, union it's much easier to stand, to take on the BMA than the Royal College of Nursing uh, because the RCN is so popular still but I think that's a mistake because I think in the end what the patients see is waiting lists, you know, not going down, struggling to get appointments, uh, they're having their operations cancelled and the patients in the end are going to blame the government for not sorting this out. Uh, so one way or the other, in the end, there is going to have to be a resolution. Uh, and, you know, the, the quicker you get to the negotiating table, the better that is. And the BMA have make clear that they are willing to move on their 35% demand. So the only way to get a resolution is to start talking. And what, I mean, thinking broadly here, what changes to junior doctors' working conditions do you think are needed for the NHS to be a sustainable workforce, sustainable profession again? I think you need to give doctors a bit more sense of control over their lives. So one doctor said to me that they that she knew of someone who hadn't been able to book a day off his own wedding a year or 18 months in advance because it's the rotors are so unpredictable that's just not that's just not sustainable so I'm sure the doctors would say it is about money but it's about a lot of other other things and I think predictability flexibility perhaps accelerated training um, perhaps more part-time working part-time training shorter medical degrees if that could be done safely more degree apprenticeships even for doctors so different ways into the profession uh, and more flexibility within it Uh, creches in hospitals that actually operate the hours that doctors operate things that make life better easier people since I wrote that piece have been sending me a tweet saying you know being able to park at the hospital if you're arriving and going in the middle of the night it's not nice to arrive in the dark particularly if you're a woman um that sort of thing sort of practical things somewhere to get a hot meal that's actually decent food not a vending machine in the middle of the night finally I mean We touched on it a bit with Pat there, but when the NHS is on its knees and it looks like this is going to be a new challenge to it and the public are massively in support of the NHS, do you think the government's politically taking the right strategy by not giving offers that are welcomed by the RCN, by the BMA? And what do you think the political consequences are for the government of this kind of deterioration that looks like it's just going to be ongoing? I think the interesting thing is that the public is theoretically supportive of the NHS but is also now increasingly frustrated by the reality of the care that's on offer. So growing frustration with the inability to get a GP appointment, growing frustration with the waiting lists. 
Um, so they like the idea of the NHS, but they don't offer they don't as much as they did like the reality of it. And I think the problem for the government is that having been in power now for 13 years, if it comes to an election and people feel they can't get an operation in a timely way, they can't get a GP appointment, you know, they see the doctors and nurses out on strike, they're going to blame the government for that rather than the NHS. And I think that's a very dangerous position, particularly for the Conservative Party, to be in. So David Cameron, he he built his leadership around neutralising the fear that people had that the Tories were against the NHS. He had those adverts, we'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. And there's a danger that for Rishi Sunak, if he throws that away, it's a really toxic political thing for the Conservative Party in particular to be seen not to be trusted on the NHS. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, but I think that is all that we've got time for today so thank you so much to Rachel and Pat for joining us if you enjoyed this podcast then grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine which includes our cover story by Matt Doncona on how Fox News stole US democracy as well as writing from Stuart Jeffries on how 15 minute cities have become the latest target for conspiracy theorists and while you're here why not subscribe to something slightly different Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley. It's a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.